he screamed at me. I sort of took a step back for a second and I looked at him and I said, you may be willing to sell your soul for a comp check, but I'm not. And I gave him my two weeks notice and for the next two weeks, I sat at my desk and I did not try to sell a mortgage to anyone. So believe it or not, I had never, I didn't graduate from college saying, I want to be a mortgage lawyer. <laughs> you didn't? That's, That's so weird. odd. I know. Isn't that weird? No. Um, I actually never intended on being in the mortgage business in the first place, let alone a lawyer in this business. Yeah. I graduated from college and my master plan was I was going to go work with my parents and I was going to be a lobbyist. Oh, your parents were lobbyists? Yes. Okay. I definitely did not know that. Yeah. Not in DC, just in Colorado. So here in Denver, but they own their, the only, at the time, the only bipartisan lobbying firm in the state of Colorado. They met when my dad was a state legislator and my mom was the legislative liaison for um, the governor's office. So that's a wild love story. uh, Yeah. It's (laughs) such a cool story, but I was so out of college. My first job, I was actually a campaign manager for a state Senate race. My mom was running um, the Senate campaign fund here in Colorado, and I lost that campaign barely, and I was unemployed. I had no job. That's what happens when you lose a campaign. You're unemployed. And and how so? How long was that between the time that you graduated and and the time that you were? I mean, so I graduated in May of 2000 and immediately went to go work for a campaign, and I lost in November. Wow. And so I just needed a, like something to tide me over until I like picked up another race or, you know, found another role or my, you know, I was going to, I was going into politics. You, you studied poli-sci or you were a poli-sci I major? Poli-sci. So yeah. you're like one of the few poli-sci majors who actually like got a, the first job out of school in politics. On purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny. Okay. All right. That's so interesting. All right, go ahead. Um, and then, but at the time, an old friend from high school's mom was the operations manager for the South Central Division for GMAC Mortgage. And she had gone through three temp receptionists that were terrible. And she needed somebody to come just like answer the phone and go through FedEx boxes. And this is back in the day when like branches would FedEx the mortgage file to the op center in Colorado and everything for South central was processed here, but there weren't, we didn't scan. It wasn't paperless. We literally FedExed mortgage files back and forth. It was crazy town. Okay. And so every day, a huge stack of FedEx boxes would come in and I'd go through them and I'd like make sure that the processors got them and whatever. And we had underwriters in the office. So very quickly I got bored with sorting FedEx boxes and answering the phone in a locked office and started asking for something else to do. And by the time I left GMAC mortgage, I was a closer for Texas loans. So wait, I, and explain what that means. So in, in operations and mortgage, right? You generally have like a, file setup person. So I, that was the first thing I did as a receptionist. So I was pulling taxes, you know, sending out orders for title insurance, faxing out, requesting homeowners insurance information. And all of that then would go to a loan processor. And a loan processor then is going to take all that along with, you know, 
your pay stubs, your W-2s, your tax returns, your bank statements, and they're going to process the loan file. They're going to evaluate your income and your assets and prepare the file for underwriting. Then the file goes to an underwriter. Underwriters, of course, double check everything, either approve or deny credit, ask for more documents, all that kind of good jazz, review appraisals. And then after the loan is fully approved, it goes to a closer. And the closer is basically going to set up, you know, the at the time it was a HUD-1, now it's a closing disclosure. How much money do you need to bring for closing for taxes, for insurance? How much proceeds are going to sell or what's the purchase price? So you're preparing all of the final documents for closing. And then we would ship them by FedEx to the title company in Texas, Colorado, um, Utah. I mean, I can't remember. Cell Central or GMAC at the time was pretty big. But I specifically did Texas loans. And Texas, if anybody's in the mortgage business, Texas is a wild place to do loans. They have um, very interesting taxing districts. So you'll have multiple property taxes on a file. And then there's these special loans that are governed by a section of the state constitution called Texas equity loans or 50A6, which is the section of the constitution. So if you do a cash out on your, on your home, it's considered a Texas equity loan. And there's a whole bunch of laws around how you have to do those. They're very scary. Um, and only certain people in any company I've ever worked at were allowed to do those loans. So when I got trained in Colorado to do Texas deals, it was kind of wild, which actually led me Ultimately, I moved to Austin um, and I knew I could get a job in mortgage business there because I'd already done Texas deals. Hmm. Um, but before I went to Austin, I actually went to a different mortgage company because I decided that I didn't want to work for my friend's mom forever. Sure. Maybe that wasn't. A, and she worked there, too. Like there were a whole bunch of us from high school that worked there. And I was like, I'm out. I'm not doing this. That's I need cool. to go somewhere. So I worked at a couple other mortgage banks um, and then decided I was going to get out of the mortgage business and that I was going to re-pursue my original plan to go work with my parents in politics and be a lobbyist. But I needed to go to grad school. So how was I, what grad school program was going to work to do that? Was it a communications program? What was it? And I landed on law school and ultimately went to University of Denver to law school, um, met my husband, still planning to go work for my parents, not planning on actually being a lawyer, like not practicing law. And um, how, how long, how many years did you work uh, after graduation from, so after undergrad until you started law school? Five years. Five years. Okay. Uh, and, and so the majority of those five years in the mortgage business? The majority of those five years in the mortgage business. Yeah, I would dabble in political campaigns and stuff on the side still, but I was making good money and I was making a living and allowed me to move out of my parents' house. Okay, you know, but, but you wanted to get out of, you know, the mortgage business. And so yeah, you like, to, your passion, your passion was and maybe still is politics, lobbying. Um, and so um, yeah. we can call it broadly public service. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so that's why you went to law school. You, you yeah. had like no desire to remain in the mortgage industry. None. I thought I'd sort of hit the ceiling. I was either going to be a loan processor forever or I was going to be an operations manager. And that really sounded boring to me. 
And I was like, nope, I'm going back. I'm going back to politics. I'm going to go to law school. This is what I'm going to do. So I go to law school. Can, can I, so, so I just have to say one thing because we're both lawyers, right? So uh, I, I left my career, career, if you want to call it that, after undergrad because I was bored out of my mind. And I thought, oh, I'm going to pursue an exciting career as a lawyer. <laughs> like, look at what we've done the last like 15, 20 years. I know. Nobody's honest with us about how boring being a lawyer is. <laughs> no, I mean, yes, there's some, you know, depending on, on, on your role and, and circumstances, it could be really exciting. But the vast majority of the time is like you're staring at documents, you're yeah. attending meetings, you're kind of, you know, uh, an intermediary between, you know, outside counsel, executive teams. It's like, oh, my gosh. Anyway. It, all right. Sorry. I had to I, I just, I had to interject because it's hilarious. It's like, you know, you 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 wanted to leave. I was this bored. Oh, you I were bored. So you want to become a lawyer. So you're not bored. Right. Right. <laughs> not that you're exactly. bored now. I'm just saying it's just like it, it is. It makes exciting. perfect sense, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. So anyway. I'm glad right. it wasn't just me. I'm glad someone else did the same thing I did. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, ultimately, <laughs> a bunch of stuff went down, and it, it po state politics changed a lot. And my mom just wanted to retire. And as I was graduating from law school, it was pretty clear that she didn't want to keep going long enough for me to sort of make a transition. And she had teamed up with um, a business partner that, I did not want to work with um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But so I was like, well, I guess I'll, and I, I clerked at some law firms and I was like, yeah, I'll give this law, legal thing a go. Let's see what happens. Why not? And then the market crashed because I graduated in 2008. Perfect timing. <laughs> I got my bar results the week the market crashed. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, all my, all mine and my husband's offers were rescinded. We had no work. We didn't know what we were going to do. Everybody was predicting doomsday, right? We're like October, 2008, the world, the sky was falling. Yeah, totally. And we had actually gone to Chicago because it was a big legal market. And when the market crashed, we packed up everything that wasn't a wedding. We sold everything that wasn't a wedding gift, packed everything else in a pod and drove back to Denver. Like we're out of here. We have family in Colorado. We'll survive. Everything will be okay. <laughs> we're out. Um, and so we sort of got back here and I thought one of us has to have a W2 job. Yeah. And we talked and hemmed and hawed and had found some contract work that sort of got us by. And Brian decided he was going to hang his own shingle and just sort of do some contract stuff. And so I literally went and applied for my mortgage processing job back. And I was, I was given an offer for $10,000 a year less than I made before law school. Wow. Yeah, it was great. It was awesome. And so it, you, well, with bonuses, I was like, we're going to be okay. This is going to be all right. Hmm. So I just start processing loans again with a law degree. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I sent, I was, I finally decided to be brave and I sent an email to the general counsel in Texas and I said, Hey, Todd, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm a processor in Colorado and I'm back. And by the way, I'm a licensed attorney now. Like, 
anytime you need me, he just blew me off. How, how big was the company? How many employees, more or less? I would say total around 300. Okay. They so not tiny. Not, not, not tiny. Tiny. They were licensed in about 12 states, sort of like Colorado was the most north and west, and then it went southeast from there. Um, so I just kept slogging along. Brian got, you know, some great gigs. We were doing great. So we decided to have a baby. I have Michael. I'm out on maternity leave. I decide I'm going to email the general counsel again. And I email the general counsel again. And he responds. And he says, you know, I'm going to be up in Denver. Can you meet me at the Denver branch? I have a four-week-old baby. And I'm like, absolutely. Of sure course. can. Nothing holding you back from doing that. Yeah. You got it. So I show up at the office. I like find an office and I hand the girl, the rest of the girls in the office. I they they babysit like they're mm-hmm. taking the baby. Mm-hmm. I go stay with Todd and I find out that they're hiring a new chief compliance officer and he's moving to Dallas. And it's this guy named Brett Foster. And I, I need to meet him when I get back from maternity leave. I'm like, this is freaking great. Like, wow. Fast forward, Brett starts, we start chatting. Brett comes up to Denver to shut down the Boulder branch invites me out to lunch and offers me a job as his deputy chief compliance officer. It started out, he was going to do two regional people, but ultimately it just was he and I, we, he, he just immediately offers me a job. The, the head of HR was in the backseat of the car. She almost had a heart attack <laughs> when he just like verbally offers me a job. When they and, have any- and you didn't. So while it is uh, common for <clears throat> a compliance officer, especially chief compliance officer, to be a lawyer. Not all chief compliance officers are lawyers. Many are not. No, especially back then. So this was in, let's see, Michael was born in 2010. So this is 2010, fall-ish. And back then, a lot of chief compliance officers were non-legal compliance professionals, and they just leaned on outside counsel. But as a result of 2008, the Dodd-Frank Act, Now we have licensing, regulators are getting more active, and that's really when more companies started hiring lawyers, compliance lawyers. And um, Starkey had to hire Brett. It it is not, it is public information. They had to hire Brett, they got in some regulatory trouble, and part of their settlement with the regulator was that they would launch a nationwide search for a new chief compliance officer. And that's how they found Brett. Okay. Um, And their outside counsel helped, helped them find him. Um, and so Brett and I worked together at Starkey. I mean, I moved to Dallas after this, like Brian and I moved to Dallas, go, I'm go work for Starkey mortgage. Then Brett left and went to work for lock Lord, big law firm in Dallas. Well, nationwide law firm, but he went to the Dallas office and I took over his role as head of compliance for Starkey mortgage. I stayed until December of 2013. Um, and ultimately we wanted to move back to Denver and I was going to find a way to do it. And so we moved back and that's when I went to go work for Accenture who had just acquired mortgage cadence. And I thought there, there were mortgage technology company. I've been in mortgage forever. I know the new rules that are out. I can help this vendor, right. Develop their compliance tech. 
And so it got me back to Denver. It got me into the vendor side, which I never thought I would do. Were, were you at, uh, at, so you weren't at Mortgage Cadence before Accenture acquired it? I was immediately post-acquisition. Okay, got it. And, and so uh, we worked together uh, for, I don't know how many years, at, at least a few years. And yeah. um, <clears throat> so you were head of compliance for Mortgage Cadence, which mm -hmm. sat as a kind of a separate, well, not kind of, it was a separate business. Um, just, it, it was just owned by Accenture. Um, and you were at Mortgage Cadence until when? I left Mortgage Cadence September of 2019. And you went to your current role. Is that right? I did not. You did, did not. not. Right. <laughs> I went to work in Big Law. I went to Ballard's Bar. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So I, the guys I've used, I've used, gosh, they were my, they were my outside counsel way back at Starkey. So I've known them for a really, really long time. Um, and I wanted to leave Accenture and I was exploring opportunities. And it was just one of those things where if you keep in touch with people that you know, then you find out about opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't. Like they didn't yeah. post for a job, right? They knew that they wanted to grow their team, but they weren't sure how they were going to do it. And then they had a junior or a mid-level associate resign. And it was like, oh, my gosh. We know Mandy's looking. She'd be great, you know, and it just sort of the pieces fall into place. And so, yeah, it's one of those lessons of don't lose your network. Make sure you always talk to people and because you never know what opportunity might present itself. Yeah. And do you think it's much easier to maintain those relationships today than it was, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Uh, sort of when we were getting started or or like with LinkedIn, for example, um, or do you think there's um, sort of this uh, superficiality of that that LinkedIn kind of um, creates? So you you maintain connections or you create new connections, but are they really like a connection is not a relationship, I think, is, right. is the point. So. Um, so through the relationships that you maintained, an opportunity was presented to you that had you not maintained those relationships and made a positive impression, obviously, when you were working with um, with the with outside counsel at that time, like things would, you know, you, you would not have had that opportunity, most likely. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I was actively looking for a job, right? So they knew that because I reached out to them and said, hey, if I know you have lots of clients, like I'm looking to make a move, whatever, whatever. Um, by the way, I'd love to come work with you guys. I've always said that we've always, I've always kept yeah. that communication open. Mm. Um, I actually talked to them when I, before I came to Cadence, I was trying to go work with them to get back to Denver when I was trying to leave Starkey. So, but to your point, actually LinkedIn, I think I'm not sure LinkedIn helps keep up real relationships. I, I totally agree with that. I find it superficial is a great word. And I find it to be a lot of noise and it can be a distraction. Like, yeah, you see things, people post this, post that they're moving here. They're moving there. Oh, they posted a job. They're hiring somebody. Great. 
it's just like Facebook for business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fine. It does. It may like, oh, you know, John knows Jeff. I want to know Jeff, right? But then you still have to take that step, I think, to develop and foster a real relationship with someone because. I don't know about you. I'm not just going to recommend somebody for a role that I'm only connected with because they asked to connect me on LinkedIn. I don't, I don't know them. I don't really know them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. So what I I actually, I have a bunch of questions for you as you were talking, I was just thinking of, of these, what were the sort of skills you think that helped you navigate your way to a senior role because you you actually did that relatively quickly i think um so what what was it you think that um helped propel you to a a senior role from you know you yeah you have your law degree and yeah that that's great um but it's you didn't as we alluded to or mentioned it you didn't need a law degree to become a compliance officer right um, right. It's helpful. I understand. Um, so what, what was it? I honestly, and I've had, it's funny cause I've had these conversations with, you know, like Trevor and stuff. Not only am I like, I know a lot of mortgage compliance lawyers, right? Um, I know a lot of lawyers, but I don't know a lot of mortgage compliance lawyers that have done multiple performed and sat in positions in multiple roles on the business side of the mortgage industry prior to being in law school. It provides a different perspective where I can say, okay, here's what the Truth in Lending Act says, and that's all well and good, but how do you operationalize that? How do you implement it in a real functional way when I know that a loan file gets touched by five different people and this is what those people, I know what those people do. I know, you know, I've got a processor who's trying to close 75 deals a month, right? And loan officers breathing down their neck, trying to get deals closed that are tough deals or whatever. So I think part of it is those five years I spent between undergrad and grad school have served me very well mm-hmm. in a legal mortgage position, having a perspective that other lawyers don't. Yeah, so that that's really interesting. Uh, you can build that kind of perspective um, in in several ways. And mm-hmm. one of the, one of one of the things I emphasize uh, to my daughter who's in college, and um, but also in one of my courses that that I produced is getting getting experience outside your area of expertise, right? Don't kind of work in, in a vacuum. Um, mm-hmm. And so the more that you know about your company's products and services, the better job you'll do because you have that, that you have that different perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's interesting that, that you say that. Um, and you're okay. right, you can get it in different ways, right? Like I have one of my direct reports she never, she didn't work in the mortgage industry. She actually worked in oil and gas. Hmm. And I brought her in back when I was at Mortgage Cadence and I had her take some like loan processor trainings from the Mortgage Bankers Association. Mm-hmm. 
and then sit down with me and just, she'd say, I'd say, ask me, ask me, you know, what does a processor go through? What questions do you have about like, how does this work? Go take the trainings on the software so that you know how a user mm-hmm. experiences in the system so that you have a different perspective when you're trying to help the product team create the thing that does the compliant thing, but understand the user experience so that you can help give, because the software developers don't have that perspective either, right? So come at things from multiple different angles, go sit with somebody, go sit in their shoes and ask those questions and watch them do their thing so that you have that business eye that you, just because you've never been a loan processor doesn't mean you can't learn what they go through, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about uh, mistakes. Man. Oh, God. Have you made any mistakes in your So many. Career? So many. <laughs> I bet I made some this week. <laughs> what, yeah, like what, 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 are some of the, what are some of the biggies that, you know, somebody hearing um, hearing this would be able to um, learn from and kind of, you know, uh, not necessarily totally avoid making the mistake, but um, at least learn from it and, and you know, sort of so, so, so they can better navigate their uh, career um, and, and their work life. Um, God, I, t- I use this example with my oldest. Look at us using our work stuff on our children. Um, my 13-year-old who like doesn't want to ever make a mistake on a test or on his homework or in a in you know in a swim meet and get a bad time or whatever it is, and it's just like devastating to him. You know, the first of all, none of us are perfect. We're all gonna mess up. It's how you learn from it and how you move on from it that really matters. Um, I can't, God, I've made so many mistakes. I think the, the one that sticks with me is one, when I was working, um, as deputy chief compliance officer back at Starkey and I was in Dallas and I had written a policy and taken a strong position with the operations team on how they needed to do something based on the law. And somebody brought it back to me and basically said, I think you're wrong. And I went back and I looked at it and I thought, oh no, I, I, I messed up big. Like I missed it. And I sat in my office alone for a little bit. And then I thought, well, I got to go own it. Cause we have to change it. And I can't just like sweep this under the rug. I mean, I'm sure I could try, but ultimately does that, I felt like that would look worse if I tried to cover it up than if I just, bit the bullet, went in. So I walked into Brett's office and I shut the door and I sat down in a chair and I started crying. And I said, I messed up. And he, and he looked at me and he goes, all right, let's fix it. Yeah. And I sort of looked at him and I was surprised, like I was expecting to get in big trouble. Right. And he goes, you know, there are, um, 55 year old executives that don't know how to admit when they mess something up and ask for help fixing it. (laughs) <laughs> you are like, always be like this. Like this is, this is a skill and a positive quality to be able to walk in and go, I need help. I messed up. Yeah. We got to fix it. <laughs> yeah. Admit your mistakes. Right. Like, and that, that's so difficult to do because uh, the fear, right. 
of, of the consequences. I've taken that. I've shared that with people I've mentored. I've encouraged my team to know that, look, I may get frustrated if we miss something big, but we're ultimately, it doesn't matter. Like if the mistake has happened, what matters is that we all come together and we go correct it and fix it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, you, you have, you have to take that approach. Otherwise, I, I only see bad things happening, right? If you don't own up to your mistakes. And who wants to work with somebody who? <laughs> who I like, don't. I don't. Mistakes? That's another lesson I learned is that after that, when I went to go look for new jobs, right? And in, in an interview, asking managers what their management approach is and, you know, asking some probing questions to try to feel them out because. I don't want to work for there. Those people exist who will scold you and yell at you and be angry yeah. with you for making mistakes. Oh, oh, I don't yeah. want to work there. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, unfortunately sometimes you don't realize that until it happens. Um, it's hard, but yeah. 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 And well, then, you have, then you just have to, then you've made a mistake in your job choice and you just have to move on. Yeah. You know what though? It's interesting because um, I have had a couple instances of that happening in my career, uh, where I, <clears throat> you know, I, I knew that it was going to be, uh, or that I was going to be working for somebody who, who's pretty tough, uh, which is fine. Um, uh, but it wasn't until several weeks into that new job where something like this came up. And, um, I mean, it, it not, not like, uh, so let's call it like a mid-level mistake. It wasn't nothing, but it wasn't like, you know, the sky's going to fall. Um, but you know, it was something and, and I owned up to it. Uh, and my gosh, the reaction was not like Brett. <laughs> it was, it, it wasn't was, Brett. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Um, it was kind of like a, a WTF type of, type of response. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was, it's really tough. You know, um, I'm thinking, okay, I have to start looking for another job because this is, e even if, I can get past this. I don't want to work in that kind of environment um, and work for somebody like that. But it turned out that uh, those roles, um, I were, were some of the some of the jobs, positions, however you want to describe it, that I grew the most in. Not just in terms of like developing, you know, my skill set, but just as a person, uh, kind of uh, a. a sense of like maturity that I developed as a result of those really difficult situations. So you can't avoid them. You could try, but it's, you know, pointless. No, it's hard. You're going to come across them. Yeah. I agree with you though. I think some of the, some of the places that I think were the most unpleasant work experiences, the places I discovered I didn't want to be. Yeah. I learned so much from yeah. God, this actually reminds me, I, I was a loan originator for like a hot second back in the uh, pre-crash, let's call it yeah. subprime. Yeah. And I went and worked at a local branch and I was, we were selling subprime mortgages. And I remember I had a client, they had an FHA loan on their house and it was a good loan and they shouldn't do anything with it. And the branch manager wanted me to convince them to do a cash out subprime mm. and pay off their FHA loan. And 
I told him I wouldn't do it. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and he took me outside behind, it was like in a strip mall. He took me outside and similar, I think I like, I, it's traumatic. I didn't want to remember it, but he screamed at me. Oh my gosh. And told me that it was my comp check and it was my job to sell that mortgage to those people. And I, I sort of took a step back for a second. I was probably on the like verge of tears, but I was like 22 and I looked at him and I said, you may be willing to sell your soul for a comp check, but I'm not. Hmm. And I gave him my two weeks notice. And for the next two weeks, I sat at my desk and I did not try to sell a mortgage to anyone. It sounds like a very uncomfortable two weeks. It was really uncomfortable. Luckily, I worked with some really nice people, some of whom I'm still friends with. Mm. But um, and they all left ultimately. But this guy, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, that's that, okay. That's fantastic. You 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 basically stuck to your principles. Um, and it was hard, though. Yeah, it no, totally. Hard. But this is also great for people to hear to know that they are going to be put in positions at some point in their career, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, where their principles will be tested or their yeah. ability to stick to their principles will be tested. And it could be very uh, difficult uh, to deal with that. Um, or it could be very easy to be sucked into it. Like, Hey, it's just, you know, just this one time, whatever, we're going to do this. My or job. It's my job. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to build a product that maybe, you know, kind of takes advantage of people or it could be interpreted as taking advantage of people. Right. Um, and and so what do you, what are you going to do? Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think you'll you'll feel a lot um, better um, with yourself in the long term if if you do stick to your principles. And that doesn't mean like okay, you just quit and walk out because then you know you're kind of letting people down, your coworkers who may not have that idea right or, or have come up with that idea for a product that kind of may be taking advantage of people or could be perceived as such. Um, but yeah, do, giving a two week notice. All right, fine. I mean, that, that is kind of an extreme case, but it can certainly happen. Um, yeah. so that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. So I, I have to ask you this, um, this question, uh, -oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh because I, I, I've heard differing uh, opinions on this, and I don't know uh, the degree to which, I mean, I want to hear from you, the degree to which um, culture has, has changed in the office uh, during your career, if at all. Maybe you'll say it hasn't. Um, but as a female working in an in industry that maybe traditionally, I don't know about any anymore, but traditionally was more male dominated. At least if you look at financial services in general, like I think it's fair to say, you tell me if you disagree, but I think it's fair to say that historically male dominated. Um, and so, you know, here you are uh, a female executive, okay? Uh, and you have been for several years. Have you come across uh, challenges either that you have experienced um, as a result of you being, you may be the only female or one of a few in a room or an office or any other kind of space, uh, or have you observed 
others. So other female executives, and they don't even have to be executives, just, you know, em employees, right? Uh, where they have sort of experienced or felt um, not so much like discrimination, okay, uh, but discomfort, sort of and anything like that? Or do you think it's like overstated? I, I, I don't know. Or is it understated? You know? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's overstated. Mm -hmm. um, I think it might be understated. Well, it used to be. So I mean, I can say sort of like the tech world, right? Like where most developers tend to be yeah. men. So in like in a mortgage branch, like a retail shop, when I was in the retail shop, it was mostly, so your operation staff was mostly women. So your processors, your closers. Oh, interesting. Your, okay. All right. Um, and then most of your executives and salespeople were men. And yeah, for sure. There was some uncomfortable stuff going on. Um, whether it was inappropriate comments from loan officers to processors, that happened a lot. Um, I know personally of folks, you know, who were sexually harassed. Um, mm. And what I can only call like mansplaining, oh, you're just my processor. I'm smarter than you are. Oh, mm. you're just... Mm. Um, and then, you know, as I sort of came up in the business, right? And then when I was head of compliance, other than HR and operations, the rest of the executive team was all men. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely... You could feel it in the air. <laughs> you could feel it. You could feel it. And there were times where you felt like you, you were screaming into the wind and nobody would listen until you got, you know, one of the guys to support mm. you. Right. So you had, I, I would, you would, I would be strategic around before I went into the executive meeting to present this thing that I knew that people were going to tell me I was either wrong. They were going to blow me off, that it wasn't a big deal. I was overreacting around risk, whatever the case may be. I would strategically go to one of the men on the executive team who I knew would listen to me first and say, okay, this is what I have. Here's what I'm going to, it was generally my general counsel because he and I were close and I knew. Yeah, sure. And so before I went into the meeting, I already had one of the guys on board, right? Make sure. Who, who, make sure who, who, I, who, was, who was going to be in that meeting? Who was going to be in the meeting. Yeah. Okay. So I already had an advocate who was one of the guys. And sometimes they blow him off too, but at least, you know, it was like, it gave us a little momentum. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then early on going to conferences, mm. especially in financial services where it's largely male dominated, there can be some uncomfortable situations. And is that still the, the case today where? I think it's way better. Way better. I think it's gotten better. I do. I think things have improved. I think there's less of it. First of all, there's a lot more women right. in financial services today than there were 15 years ago. Okay. Um, there are a lot of senior female executives um, who are now 
like in the conference arena, you don't, it used to be, I'd go to an NBA conference and it was like 95% old white guys. And, and just to clarify, MBA Mortgage Bankers, mortgage Bankers Association. Okay. Yes, sorry. Um, and yeah. now, you know, it's way more diverse, not only across, um, you know, gender, but also race. Like, mm-hmm. And I think that the industry has been making a concerted effort. I think they realized years ago that they had a problem. Um mm-hmm. And things are better. I don't, I'm sure it still happens. I'm sure. 100% yeah. sure of it. Yeah. Um, I have actively sought out, well, and I've also been lucky, right? My current role, I'm at ACES Quality Management. The CEO of ACES used to be at Mortgage Cadence. Um, so I know him, right? And I know the kind of culture that he creates. Yeah. And I know it's an equitable and open one. Mm-hmm. And where bad behavior isn't tolerated. Mm-hmm. And so I, I consciously chose this role. I'm at a place in my career where I can do that kind of thing. And I'm lucky. And yeah. Okay. Right. So, yes, you are. Um, however, if you were just starting out, even for your first job out of college, you, you probably should have the mindset that you are interviewing companies because they should yes. be, yeah, they should be, um, I'm, I don't want to overstate this, but somewhat, if, if you're a good person, you're a hard worker, the company is lucky to have you, yep. right? Interview the companies. Of course, they're going to interview you, but you got to kind of turn the tables to some degree so that you at least mitigate the, the chances that, yeah. that you're going to be in, you know, you're going to have to work in a culture that is antithetical to your beliefs and also just maybe not, you know, to, to your point, equitable in terms of treatment, right? Um I- that's a great point and something I wish I learned sooner. You know, I used to dread that part of an interview where they'd say, well, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. And um, how many times, yeah. How many times have we said, no, 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 I'm all good. I did some research on the company before I, I you know, to show, yeah. hey, I actually did some research. So no, I'm all good. When that is like the last thing you want to do and say, right? You're exactly right. Yeah. And you know what? Exactly what we're talking about now should be part of your playbook when you're in an interview and the things you want to know about the company. Yeah. What are your company's policy on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah. What are your company's, you know, you know, what's your mix of males versus females versus, you know, whatever on your executive team? Yeah. And, and, and do, do different types of research. Obviously, you should know the products and services that any company you're interviewing with offers, but maybe take Go to some, their leadership page. Yeah. Well, but also like try to talking, you know, previously about like superficial connections, try to establish initially a, like connect to somebody, take them out for coffee. Yeah. You will learn so much more. You'll learn a hundred times more about a company's culture by talking to, let's say, a small number, two, three, four people who have worked there for a while compared to a, you know, a two hour interview where, you know, you're, you're kind of like, on, you know, you're on your best behavior, of course, always. But, you know, you're not really like asking the questions that that you would ask somebody, you know, in a different setting. If, right? if you if you had a friend who worked there and you would ask them, yeah, give me the skinny. That's a good point. Maybe if you're going to go on LinkedIn, find somebody who either still works there or 
used to work used there. Used to work there, yes, exactly. Maybe even better, right? Because people who would I say, yes, people who would say, like, stay the hell away from this company. Yeah. Okay, well, don't, I mean, don't just put all your trust in one person's experience no. because who knows what led to that. But if, you know, you're, if three out of three people or four out of four people say something similar, that obviously is, is a red flag. But if you learn that, let's say the handful of people who left the company, they actually speak highly of it. And maybe they're going in a different direction, you know, in their life or in their career, whatever, like, okay, that's so much more valuable than, you know, asking, you know, questions of somebody that you're interviewing uh, or interviewing with, right? Yeah. Uh, during the interview process, I think anyway. I mean, you, sh you should still ask those questions. You should do both. You should yeah. do both. Yeah, yeah. Because, because what if you ask somebody about, you know, their diversity policies and they get all squirrely and they're like, we don't have one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, okay, that's great. So what do you think in, in hindsight, or what do you, I should say, know in hindsight that, college really didn't teach, but was like fundamental for you to just function well in an office environment, right? Wh whatever, it could be hard skills, it could be soft skills, whatever it is. And, and regardless of whether that was in the first part of your career, you know, when you're in the uh, mortgage business, well, you're a non-lawyer in the mortgage business or after law school when you're now a lawyer in the mortgage business, like regardless, just throughout your career. It's so funny. I did this exercise with my team this week because, and then this is a total soft skill, is to try to understand interpersonal stuff in your office, right? Um, trying to understand that you and I may communicate in very different ways and how I communicate, you may perceive as offensive and that's what's creating the issue. It's not that you're a jerk or understanding that you and I, you know, you and I may react differently to stress. And if I know that Jeff reacts to stress by shutting down and getting quiet, <laughs> and not telling me, then I, as a teammate, know if Jeff gets quiet, I need to reach out and say, hey, Jeff, do you, how can I help you? You seem, you seem stressed out. You're quiet. Is everything okay? What can I do? How can I support you? Are you overwhelmed? And as managers, being able to understand that too, that your staff all react to things differently. Mm -hmm. But if as a team, you can then learn about each other, right? Instead of just reacting. Like as young people, it's like there's sort of this perception is reality thing. Well, I think Jenny doesn't like me because she's abrupt all the time and her communication. Well, it turns out that's just how she communicates and she likes me just fine. But if I don't learn that that person communicates in a different way than I do, it can create office tension and problems in the office that could be resolved and you could all work really well together if you understand that you're all different, you know? Yeah, that, yeah. It sounds so cheesy, but I did this exercise with my team this week. We did like the DISC personality assessment thing. And then we spent an hour and a half talking about, you know, my report says this about me. Oh, that's so different than me. My report says this. 
And they all said at the end of it, their takeaway was they think we can work better as a team now because they understand each other more. Mm, yes, 100%. And that is definitely not something that you learn sitting in a college no. classroom or lecture hall. Yeah. Right? No. And, and also, we, our friend group. we go to class, we do our work, we take our tests. Yeah. Like what? I, you're also not like you're not necessarily. In fact, I would say in most cases, you're not really taught that at work either. I mean, there are these more um, forward thinking companies like it sounds it sounds like yours is and, and you are as a manager that really take that seriously. It's all about communication right at the end of the day. And, and how you can most effectively uh, communicate and, and, and collaborate with each other. And you really have to know somebody. You have to, more, you have to know more about that, that person than you otherwise would if you're just kind of plotting through your day. And, you know, yeah. And it you'll... doesn't mean you all have to be best friends. No, no, definitely not. But if you know and understand each other and you can play on each other's strengths. Yeah. And support each other when you can see that someone is struggling and have you know having a rough day or whatever. A rising tide raises all ships, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my approach. I was lucky enough. I had a manager back at Starkey that did the disc thing with us. Mm. Um, we were having some serious personality issues among <laughs> the processing team, and so she like hired a consultant to come in and do it. It was unbelievable. She also did one. Another good one is, um, and it plays off of it too. Don't move my, don't move my cheese. The book about change. It's, this, it's a skinny little book, but something big changed in the company, and he, none of us like change. It's hard. Like if we've done something the same way forever, like and there's monumental changes in an organization, it can be difficult. And everybody, going back to everybody's personality is different. Everybody handles and approaches that change differently. Um, but there's a book called Don't Move My Cheese, um, which is, and there's a whole training thing around it in the workplace that you can do, but it's it's all about handling change. Hmm. And it, that one was another really useful training that I thought that I've taken away and tried to sort of implement bits and pieces when things change in a small company um, and try to work with your team on, yeah, look, this is hard and none of us like it, but let's find a way to do it in a way that's going to be productive and get through it. Um, but yeah, don't move my cheese is another good one. I'll have to find my copy. It's over here on the bookshelf somewhere. All right. Yeah, cool. I've never heard of that. I'll check it out. Well, that, I think that's great. Thanks, Mandy. Yeah. <laughs> good to see you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Office IQ. If you're looking for ways to accelerate your path to success, you can find more resources like this on our YouTube channel or at officeintelligence.com. We offer courses and other content that will literally change the direction of your career for the better. If there are any topics you'd like to hear more about or questions you'd like me to address on future episodes, you can send an email to jeff at officeintelligence.com.